Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in sections... 37 through 40. 37 through 40. That's where we're going to be. And a major shift, because now the Lord is going to shift the headquarters of the church. He's now going to call them to leave New York and let's head to Ohio. So a lot of changes that are coming. So we open up in section 37, where a very short section, but the Lord basically says, it's time to go to the Ohio. Stop your work on the Bible. And don't continue it because we're going to go to the Ohio. He says it twice in section 37. I'm going to go to the Ohio. Now, just to see where his the Lord's kind of leading them, in verse 32 of section 38, he says, I'm taking you to the Ohio for two main reasons. Number one, I'm going to give you my law there. Now, that will be section 42 that Joseph designates as the law of the church. So I'm going to go to the Ohio so I can give you my law. And then at the end of verse 32, he says, I'm going to go take you to the Ohio so I can endow you with power from on high. And that may not refer to our own individual endowments, which won't happen till Nauvoo, but he's referring to the fact that we will build the first temple and keys will be restored. And that is an endowment of power that they will receive in Kirtland. So the Lord is now beginning to prepare the whole church to shift to Ohio, and that's hard to move. But I want to focus primarily in verse 38 as he prepares to give the law. In section 42, one aspect of the law that he will give is the law of consecration. In verse 38, he begins to lay the groundwork for the law of consecration. So now we need to start turning our attention to the law of consecration. And let me just say as a precursor, kind of the underlying principle of the law of consecration is this. If you are willing to give all that you have and all that you are to God, God is willing to give all that he has and all that he is to you. If you hold back, then God will have to hold back. And there's kind of the underlying principle of consecration. I think we could say our critics are uh, looking at it as, okay, you're amassing wealth. You're trying to take away people's power. And I think what consecration, one way to look at it is it's an invitation for us to participate and for us to look at each other differently. For example, one time I was teaching a class and we were talking about consecration and one of my students said, there's no way I'm gonna do it. He was a young man and he got up every morning, worked on a mink farm and he had scratches all over his arms. And he's like, why am I getting up at four in the morning so that I can give my money? And I said to him, okay, but let let me pose a hypothetical. What if your grandmother needed groceries that week? And he's like, I do it in a heartbeat. And I said, okay, what's the difference? And he said, well, it's how I look at her. It's how I view her. What's in our heart as well. I can't get out of my head that vision of Enoch, where Enoch's eyes are changed, how we see things. And that's the invitation with this new law. The law of consecration is to partner with God in a way that you become partners with him. If you're willing to give your heart to God, he is willing to give his heart to you. 
when we get to section 42 and the Lord reveals the law, we will talk a lot about the outer law of consecration, the the way it worked or ideally the way it could work in an outer way, the way we live with each other. But in preparation for that, the Lord lays the groundwork by giving us the inner law of consecration, the issues of our heart that we're going to have to deal with, the issues that will make or break the outer living of consecration. And that's kind of the section 38, is amidst all of this, he kind of lays that groundwork as to, will will your heart be right? So as you go through section 38, watch for the underpinnings of the spirit of consecration, the heart issues of consecration. For example, let me give you number one. Now, I do like lists. Item number one, verse 16, he says, For your salvation I give unto you a commandment, for I have heard your prayers, and the poor have complained before me, and the rich have I made, and all flesh is mine. And then later on, in verse 39, he'll say, It must needs be that the riches of the earth are mine to give. And I'm going to combine those into one idea, that all flesh is mine. I think what he's trying to say is your abilities, your talents, what you can do was God-given. And the possessions that we possess, my money, were God-given. Attitude number one, to live the law of consecration, we have to believe that all that I am and all that I have really is God's. And I'm happy to give it to him. I freely offer it to the Lord because he freely offered it to me. And there's the attitude. Do you view your possessions? Do you view what you do as a gift from God or something that you've earned? And that will determine the heart. That will determine whether or not you live the outer law of consecration. Do you pay your tithing because you recognize that everything you have comes from God anyway, and I'm happy to give part of it back? Or will your attitude be, no, I earned this, this is mine, and be reluctant to give it back to the Lord? you see that heart issue? And we're going to see both of those played out in the historical narrative of the Ohio Saints. We're going to see some that say, well, if the Lord needs it, it's his. And we're going to have others that are just going to try and chase that wealth. And so to me, consecration is also not so much a law about what I need to do, but it's a law that helps me see what I can become. It's kind of revealing character, as it were. I heard a famous radio personality talk about money, and he said, when you're really rich, it reveals your character. And so sometimes wealth can be a challenge. And there are going to be some saints in Ohio that are very wealthy, and they're going to give everything. We're going to talk more about them in our next podcast, but the Partridge family is one, and another is the, is the Whitney family. But there will also be saints in Kirtland when property values skyrocket are looking to make a buck because, hey, I deserve this. I've earned this. This is me. And that's the issue is what is in your heart? Is it your wealth? Is it your ability? Did you earn this? Or is this something that God gave you? Is the ability to do this God-given? When when the 
Israelites were about to come into the promised land, Moses was worried about what would happen because he knew what kind of land they were coming into. And so he gives kind of his, in his farewell address, he says in Deuteronomy 8, 7, hey, the Lord's going to bring you into a good land. And then he describes how good the land is. And he says, now I'm worried. I'm worried that you're going to forget the Lord and you're going to say, this is verse 17 of chapter 8, Deuteronomy 8, 17. I'm worried that you're going to say, my power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. And then he counsels them. Moses says, but don't do that. You need to remember the Lord, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. And then I love that he throws in the reason the Lord gives us power to get wealth is, quote, that he may establish his covenant. And there's the attitude. There's attitude number one is, whose wealth is it? Whose ability is it? Whose brilliance brought the money into your possession in the first place? Was it God-given or was it you? Kind of going back to King Benjamin's address, is it the greatness of God or is it the greatness of man? So precursor number one to the law of consecration is, what is the source? What do you view as the source of your wealth and your greatness? Number two, back in section 38, verse 17, he says, I have made the earth rich. As a parallel, in section 104, which is also about consecration and stewardship, he says the same thing. Section 104, verse 17, he says, For the earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. One of the things that threatens consecration is this scarcity mentality. There's not enough. Now, capitalism is built on that. And um, I don't want to offer a commentary on capitalism here, but consecration has the attitude, no, there's enough for everyone. I think sometimes sales and capitalism, right? You've got to buy now because there's only two tickets left. I have to convince you that there's a scarcity. My wife actually was looking for plane tickets and they had a sale price and it said only two left. So she bought them. And the next day there were five for less money. And she called the airline. She's like, wait, you said there are only two left. And I looked at her and I said, honey, that's 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 kind of scarcity mentality. That's what they do. And yet on the other side of capitalism, I think capitalism creates wealth. If you think about just some of the things that we've seen in our time, right, the invention of the cell phone or even what the internet has done, it has actually created jobs and created wealth. So I think you can see both there, but I really do think this scarcity idea or this scare tactic, I I look at that as as almost like a compulsion. I'm not going to have any because there's only so much. And that mentality is going to threaten consecration. Do you remember when the Lord first rained manna on the children of Israel? Now, they're in a desert, and they have starved in the past. And now, all of a sudden, they have plenty of food. What does that scarcity mentality cause them to do? They gather more than they need, and it goes bad. Now, was manna capable of lasting more than a day? Yes, because on the day before the Sabbath, they were told to gather enough for the next day. But when they gathered more than they needed on a non-Sabbath day, it went bad. And the Lord was trying to say, trust me, there is enough. 
and we can live consecration. Everyone can have what we need. This earth can produce all that we need it to produce. Now, just as an interesting commentary, James E. Faust said the following, an article in U.S. News and World Report entitled, quote, 10 billion for dinner, please, states that the earth is capable of producing food for a population of at least 80 billion. Eight times the 10 billion expected to inhabit the earth by the year 2050. One study estimates that with improved scientific methods, the earth could feed as many as 1,000 billion people. The Lord said, quote, for the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. Now, the reason people go without is this scarcity mentality and people hoarding, and I have to gather as much as I can for me. And that has to change in our hearts. If we're going to live the law of consecration, we cannot buy into that. I have to hoard for me. Do you remember that parable where the Savior talks about the rich man whose ground brought forth plentifully? And so what was his first thought? Oh, I'll just build a bigger barn. Instead of, I have all that I need, let me give to others who don't have. His first thought was, I have to hoard it because there's not enough. Or the other thought is, I have to hold it because what if there's a famine? And I think sometimes living in that boom and bust situation where the rains are bad one year, it's good to save. And so where's that balance? There's a balance the, there. Yeah, what do you do with that? But in the heart, if we're going to live consecration, we have to believe that there's enough. Yeah. And, and I the, think it's easier to live when we see people different. Yeah. Like, I know you. And if you came to me and you said, hey, I need help. And if I have the means, it, that's different than if it's a stranger. And so I think that's what the bishops, we're, we're going to do this in the next few sections, but the bishop's going to be called. And it's almost like a full-time job to kind of figure out, okay, what are Bryce's needs? What are Mike's needs? And how do we balance the needs of the many and the needs of the few? That's another job. That is. So, and, and I'm grateful Joseph says, I'm going to delegate this, right? It's a big deal. So number three on our list, kind of preparing to live the law of consecration, in verse 24 through 27 of section 38, he teaches. Now, again, notice how the Lord emphasizes. He emphasizes by repetition. So he's going to say it, and then he's going to come out and say, let me say it again. And that's the Lord really emphasizing something. So point number three, if you're going to live the law of consecration, verse 24 you must esteem your brother as yourself. Back to Mike's comment about his student. As soon as that stranger meant to you what your grandma means to you, you won't have a hard time sharing with the stranger. You must esteem your brother as yourself. And then notice verse 25. Let me say that again. Let every man esteem his brother as himself. That's what God does. He doesn't value anyone else any differently. And then he concludes it in verse 27 by saying, you've got to learn to be one. If you can't learn to be one, you can't be mine. Now, later in section 78, he's going to pick up that same idea and put a little bit of weight onto it. He's going to say, verse 5 of 78, that you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also for the obtaining of heavenly things. And then this heavy statement, if you are not equal in earthly things, 
you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. So we've got to learn to esteem each other as ourselves. I'm no better than anyone else, and no one else is better than I am. We are all Heavenly Father's children. That has to drive what's in my heart when it comes to living the law of consecration. We are all of equal value to God. Because as soon as you start thinking you're better, if you want to go back into the Book of Mormon, there's a great verse in Jacob where Jacob says, because you have more than someone else does, you assume that you are better. And that's why you're persecuting and lifting yourself up. It's because you think you're better, and that can't be the case. We will never fully live the law of consecration if I think I'm better than you, and I'm persecuting you. So there's number three on our list. Now, number four, verse 35, I am my brother's keeper. We've got to change that mentality. I am my brother's keeper. The Lord commands in verse 35 that we shall, quote, look to the poor and the needy and administer to their relief that they shall not suffer. The Lord does call upon us to take care of his other children. One of the reasons he blesses some is so that they can bless others. We are our brother's keeper, and we do have a moral duty to help those in need. And I should be looking for those opportunities. And then there's one more in section 38, kind of as a precursor to living the law of consecration. Verse 40, everyone, I give you a commandment that every man, elder, priest, teacher, member, everyone, go to with his might, with the labor of his hands. Everyone has to be willing to labor and work. There's no way consecration works if a portion of the population is idle and lazy and unwilling to do their share. And so my attitude needs to be, I'm willing to work. I'm willing to do my share so that my burden doesn't fall upon someone else. I'm going to do all that I can to take care of me. So do you see how the Lord's just kind of laying the groundwork for the law of consecration in section 38? As he says, I'm going to send you to Ohio so I can give you the bigger law, but be prepared to live that law by putting these things in your heart. And there's a warning there. Look in verse 39. If you seek riches, which it is the will of the Father to give, you'll be the richest of all people. But then at the end of verse 39, he says... But beware of pride. And that's kind of where Bryce was talking about, where Jacob says, hey, don't think you're better. One commentator said that wealth in itself is not evil, and the Lord is not automatically displeased with the wealthy, for he himself has blessed them with these riches. It is, however, and here's the warning, the natural course of things for the rich or perhaps for their children or their grandchildren to become first proud and then unfaithful. If the rich take no measures to keep this from happening, or if they just don't give it enough thought, it will happen just as surely as an untended garden will become overgrown with weeds. Therefore, wealthy saints must be aware of the natural effect wealth has on people and must work actively and creatively to keep those weeds from their gardens. The natural progression, whether in one generation or the next, is to pride and then to unfaithfulness and thence to wickedness and destruction. 
And so I think the Lord, I, I, I look at the Lord t- as he looks at his children and he wants to give them riches, but with it, there's like this preloaded condition and almost a preloaded curse that if you're not faithful, if you're not humble, it's just kind of natural. And maybe maybe you've seen it in your life as you've accumulated wealth, you kind of come to this point of, man, I'm, I'm something, aren't I? And I think the Lord is saying, no, we can't be thinking like this. Now, I also think about how is Joseph going through this? As he's getting this revelation, he's not in a wealthy position. And he's going to have to ask people that are to give. And I just um, I just try to imagine how would that have been like to ask Newell K. Whitney. There's a, a number of examples in the early church in Ohio after he joins the church. He and, and uh, Sidney Gilbert are running a store. And they have this massive inventory. And then there comes a time when he's called upon to do things like pay the property taxes that the church has or to completely eliminate debts that people have. And he freely does it. And yet Joseph's not in that position. I'm sure Joseph would have loved to have been in a wealthy position so he can say, look, I'm giving financially. And so we're all in these different positions. And so to those that don't have, we need to give what we have. And to those that have a lot, they need to give. And it all, like it all to me comes down to how I see people and what's in my heart. I want to talk a little bit about this section too on a global scale. So big picture, I don't think this is just about a few hundred saints in Ohio. Look at verse one, the great I am, alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity. And then verse two, he sees everything, all things are present. And then he references Enoch in verse four, and then he references The residue of the wicked have I kept in chains in verse five. So the big picture, what I want you to think about is, and I encourage all of us to do this, read Moses five, six, and seven. Those chapters are what Joseph has been working with in the Joseph Smith translation up to December. And if you look at the revelation, it's January 2nd. This is fresh on his mind. And I can't help but see these ideas through the lens of those chapters in the Pearl Great Price. And in those chapters, because we're not going to do a podcast on them, that would be its own podcast. But in those chapters, essentially, Enoch is initiated into the secrets of heaven. His eyes are anointed. He sees the adversary. He sees the forces of righteousness. And he sees this over and over again where the heavens are weeping. In fact, let's just read a couple of these verses to kind of get a feel for what it is we're talking about. So go to Moses 7, verse 26. So I'm going to talk about light and darkness. We'll start with the darkness. Verse 26, Enoch beheld Satan, and he had a chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up, and he laughed, and his angels rejoiced. So there's this darkness that he sees. Here's Satan laughing because he got the wrong things into our heart. He got us out of this Enoch society. He got us to not live the way the Lord has just revealed in section 38. So Moses and section 38 are happening simultaneously in Joseph's head, and he's starting to realize, here's Satan laughing. If he can change the way we think, if he can get us out of Zion. Yeah because we're selfish, we're focused on ourselves, or whatever. I don't esteem myself as a brother. I think everything that I have is mine. So there's Satan. That's how it begins. Satan is laughing because I've got this chain around people who will not be in Zion. Yeah. And now he shifts. 
and sees God. I, I'm going to say that I think one of their sins, and this may be just my reading, so I got to be careful, but I think one of the sins that he sees is called the Mahan principle. And the Mahan principle in a nutshell Back in Moses 5 is yeah. where he's getting this from. If you're interested, Moses chapter 5, verse 31. Let's go there. Cain says, I am Mahan, master of this great secret, that I may rob, steal, plunder, take away from you. you I can end your life and steal your money. Yeah. That, that I that may word, get gain. Yeah. That word gain is going to be money or, in this case, flocks or herds. In verse 33 of Moses 5, Cain gloried. In that which he had done, saying, I am free. Surely my flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. And I am not my brother's keeper. I don't have to worry about the consequences on him. Do you see, this is the exact opposite of what we just talked about in section 38. It's the same stuff. It's the same idea of get what you can. You're on your own. Yeah. And there's not enough. Yeah. And so... The reason why I want to just back up with section 38 and kind of look at this with a, a wider lens is because that's what Moses does. He sees the whole face of the earth. He sees, and now I'm back to Moses 7, 28. He sees God weeping. He asks the question in 29, how can you weep? And then he says in verse 30, by the way, you see millions of earths like this, and yet you're there, verse 31, your bosom is there. And then he asks again in the end of verse 31, how can you weep? How, How does can you the do greatest that? being in the entire universe cry? What are you lacking? What don't you have? You have everything, and yet why are you crying? Well, this is a great insight into God's character on why God cries. Yeah. Verse 32, God cries, behold thy brethren. They are the workmanship of mine hands. I gave them knowledge. I gave them agency in Eden, and yet they won't love one another. They are without affection, and they hate their own blood. You see how that relates to what we're talking about in section 38? God cries because we are mean to each other, and we hurt each other. We hurt his children. It's just, it's just a commentary on our day, too. I mean, this is just as relevant. I'm in the 41st verse. The Lord spake to Enoch and told Enoch all the doings of the children of men. Wherefore Enoch knew, he looked upon their wickedness and their misery, and he wept and stretched forth his arms, and his heart swelled wide as eternity, and his bowels yearned, and all eternity shook. And I have in my scriptures the word his circled. And my question is, whose heart swelled? Maybe it's both. Maybe it's Enoch's and the Lord's. In other words, this is a sacrament. This is Enoch getting a glimpse as to how the Lord feels about his children. But he just keeps asking, when is, when is the earth going to have rest? And when is this going to happen? Section 38 is inviting all of us to make Zion. And I think sometimes in Christianity, we have this thought of, oh, I hope Jesus comes and it's all going to get better. And I think section 38 is saying, how about this? How about we get better? And then Jesus will come. How about we live Zion? And if we can't live Zion globally, like we all want somebody else to change. And I think section 38 is, no, Mike, bro, how about you change? Yeah. Going back to that whole idea of the city of Zion, Moses 7, the Lord called his people Zion because why? They were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness. There was no poor among them. 
You make that happen. You focus on that. You focus on your heart and your mind and learn how to get along with each other, and that will bring God into our society. If not into our society, at least into our homes. So big picture, I don't think this is just about a few hundred saints in Ohio. If you go to section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says, oh, by the way, this country is going to tear itself apart. And I look at the political and military conflicts throughout the world, not only in the Civil War, but after the Civil War, especially in the 20th century, where millions of people have died. A lot of those conflicts have been over this principle, the Mahan principle, if you want to look at it through the lens of darkness or through the lens of light, if you want to call it fairness or you want to call it consecration. I love verse 26 of section 38, where God says, I'm no respecter of persons. And if they serve him obediently, and he says to them, be thou clothed in robes and sit thou here and to the other, be thou clothed in rags and sit thou there and looketh upon his sons and saith, I am just behold, this I have given unto you as a parable. And it is even as I am. And I say unto you, be one. And if you're not one, you're not mine. And then verse 28, it's very, it's interesting how this verse comes across because it's in here a couple of times. In verse 28, it says, I say unto you that the enemy is in the secret chambers and he seeks your lives. And then he says it again in verse 13. I'm going to tell you this mystery and it's in secret chambers. I think one of the mysteries is this. It's the Mahan principle. We've got to stop converting people into property. I think another mystery is the Lord's telling Joseph, people want to kill you. Like you've got to get out and you've got to go now. In fact, verse 37 of section 38 makes it sound like we've got to go today. But I think on another level is this macro level, and that's verse 29. I think verse 29 is a major allusion to what's happening. The Lord is pushing them west because not only is the United States going to collapse upon itself, but the world is. Think of all the people that have been killed over these struggles of the inequality of man. The oligarchic systems in Europe and Asia where vast amount of wealth was held by a minority of people. The revolution in 1917 in Russia, how many wars and how much death has come about because of this. So you almost can see God looking across the vast expanse of humanity and he sees what's coming And so much of this is related to how we treat each other. And it's so much bigger than a couple of saints in Ohio, a few hundred of these Latter-day Saints. This is a principle where God in heaven is shouting from the tops of heaven through this teeny little band of Christians, and he's begging us to get this figured out. And I think all the systems that we have in place all across these nations, we are always wrestling with this idea of how do we take care of each other? And I don't have the answers other than to say, in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord shows us the ideal. And the ideal is, where's my heart? How do I see things? And I also think this is just an inevitable consequence. When a few people have all the power and they have all the money, we have that massive revolution in Russia, or Abraham Lincoln talked about this in America, where he said, slavery is going to ruin this country. He talked about it as a snake or a cobra in a baby's crib. And he says, you can't just grab the snake and rip it out. But if you let that snake stay in the crib, it's going to kill the baby. We've got to separate the baby, which is the union, from the snake of slavery. He saw it for what it was, and he knew that it was going to be a problem. 
And the Lord, I think, is saying, yeah, that that's kind of what I'm talking about. And so this is a really big thing, and yet it's packaged in this little section to this little band of, of Christians, in my estimation, how I see this. And so if I've been blessed with a lot of wealth— Or not just wealth, but talent, ability, um, influence, if I have, if I am— then my job is to help and share those who need. It's because this is God's wealth, and there's that attitude. It's, this came to me from God, therefore it's his to do with he, as he sees fit, and he wants to bless his children. There's that attitude. And there's enough for all of us. I can share, and I won't deprive myself. There's enough for all of us, because I'm no better than anyone else. All of these principles that are just so powerfully laid out in section 38 are the solution to so many ills in society today. It also leads to missionary work, right? Yeah, God has the answer. So spiritually, go give to those who need. I remember when I was 19, my bishop said, Mike— you're in such a wealthy nation. Do you think God in heaven would just sit and, and say, no, don't go on a mission? No, you've been blessed. You've got to go. You've got to take it out there. So that now leads us to section 39, which really does flow out of 38, because section 39 is to an individual named jo- James Koval. And the Lord is going to say, here are the blessings that are yours if you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, James is not going to do it. And if you go to section 40, he's going to walk away, and the Lord's going to say his heart was right, and all of these blessings were to be his, and he could have had these blessings, but he walked away. Therefore, he broke the covenant, and he, he, he's not going to have them. So the sad story of James Colville is our invitation to receive them. Now, I think the whole section 39 can be encapsulated in verses 16 through 18. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the people of Ohio call upon me in much faith, thinking I will stay my hand in judgment upon the nations, but I cannot deny my word. In other words, the people in Ohio saw wickedness in the land and knew that that would bring desolation, that would bring problems, that the Lord would cause negative things to come into the land if wickedness was in the land. Therefore, they're praying that the destruction not come. Do you see what's ironic about that prayer? They're praying that the destruction not come. And the Lord turns that right around in verse 17 and says, if you want the destruction not to come, then you preach the gospel to them. Call for faithful laborers to prune my vineyard. And inasmuch as they do repent and receive the fullness of my gospel, then will I stay my hand in judgment. I think we all want something that can never be. People want to make God in their own image, and they're like, let me do what I want, get what I want. But I don't want the punishment. Yeah, I don't want the consequence. I don't want the negative consequence. I want you to withhold the negative consequence. They're praying that the negative consequences don't come. What they should be praying for is the change that we need to do in order to avoid the negative consequence. By the way, it's so American. I want to eat cake and donuts, and I want to eat them now. And can I take a pill that can make me skinny for my vacation pictures or that can make me skinny when my son gets married so I look good? And the Lord's like, well, it doesn't work that way, right? But don't we all kind of want the quick fix or the easy thing? And I think, I really do think in 1830, they see the writing on the wall. You know, it's not in your face, but yet I think 
there's enough of this in here where the Lord says, this isn't fair. This inequality is not right. He is not coming out and talking about slavery here. But I think that's got to be in the back of some people's minds. There sure mind. is a suggestion here, especially since the previous section was all about, you've got to esteem your brother like yourself. If you don't, then there's going to be consequences. And, and I'll throw this out here too, Bryce, from the last few revelations we read. Think about, we're just beginning. The government's really starting to push another group of people around, and that's the Native Americans. There's a lot of things happening behind the scenes in the context of this revelation. And I also see the Lord saying, no, I want to build Zion with the Native Americans. I want people to be equal. And yet the saints are just in this massive soup of history where all this stuff is flying around this hurricane, as it were, and they're just trying to make their way. And they're a teeny little band, aren't they? Yeah. And the Lord is saying to James Colville, and he's saying to all of us, wonderful blessings will come into your life if you will join the gospel, if you will embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, notice what he says in verse 9, you have seen great sorrow. Why? Because you rejected me many times and because of the pride and the cares of the world. So the Lord is saying, rejecting God and the pride and the cares of the world have brought great sorrow into your life. And then he turns that around and says, the days of your deliverance are come if you will hearken to my voice. And if you will hearken to my voice, end of verse 10, you shall receive my spirit and a blessing so great as you never have known. A greater work, a greater blessing. Now, the reality is Heavenly Father isn't saying you have to do it my way and I'll bless you. If you don't do it my way, I'm going to curse you. Heavenly Father is saying, I know what makes my children happy, and I have commanded you to do the things that make you happy. When we don't listen to God, it's the natural unhappiness that he foresaw that comes into our lives. It's not Heavenly Father saying, how dare you break my commandments, and he curses us. He has been commanding us these things because he knew they would hurt us. And when we don't listen to him, we open the door to the very destruction he foresaw coming. And so he says to James, I've been offering you a great happiness, but you have rejected me many times. You've cared about the world, you've had pride, and that was the source of quite a bit of your sorrow. If you will instead embrace the gospel and have the Spirit, you will know a blessing like you've never known. And that's the invitation to the whole world. Your sorrow comes from rejecting the principles of God. God. If you will embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will know a blessing greater than you have ever known. And I love verse 11. Notice what the Lord says about the reason he restored the gospel, the covenant. What's the purpose of the covenant that he restored in our day? Verse 11, he says, I have prepared thee for a greater work. Thou shalt preach the fullness of my gospel, which I have sent forth in these last days. Now listen to this phrase. The covenant which I have sent forth to recover my people. That's the message that we that the gospel presents to the world. There is a message that will recover us. And if we hear it, we will, I love verse 12, It shall come to pass that power shall rest upon thee 
Thou shalt have great faith, and I will be with thee and go before thy face. That's what he's offering. A peace, a power, his presence, if we will embrace the covenant that was sent to recover us. But rejecting God's covenant will bring sorrow. Now, James Colville is going to turn away from the gospel, and he will lose the blessings. And so in section 40, his heart was right, but notice verse 2 of section 40, because of the cares of the world, but straightway Satan tempted him, and the fear of persecution and the cares of the world caused him to reject the word. Therefore, he broke the covenant, and he will lose those blessings. And it's the Lord's way of saying, sorrow, great sorrow, is coming back into his life because he had the opportunity to receive that great blessing, and he chose not to do it that way. We can avoid sorrow. Now, I think we all need to understand, not all sorrow in our life is because of sin and transgression. But sin and transgression bring sorrow into our life. Mortality requires a a sense of sorrow. Mortality requires pain. It's written into the whole program. But not all pain is because of sin. What we're talking about is the pain that comes because of sin, because we've rejected God. And the Lord is saying, if you're praying that the consequences be stayed, if you're praying not to have the suffering, then what you really need to do is repent. And that's how you avoid the consequences. I can't hold back the negative consequences when you choose to disobey God. That's the sad story of James Colville, but that's the invitation that God is making to all of us. If you want a great a blessing so great as you have never known, embrace God's teachings. Live his way. If you reject that way, you are going to suffer the challenges he foresaw when he commanded us not to live that way. Yeah. James Coville kind of comes in the church and goes out of the church. And so if you go to the Joe Smith papers and you can kind of read about him, one of the things about him is when this revelation was given, he's about 60 years old. And for two thirds of his life, he'd been a Methodist minister or he'd been really high up in some of the, the Methodist associations and societies. And I don't know what James Coville was like, but we know that he rejected the council, but the invitation was there. I think he's a really good foil. We see guys like Edward Partridge and Lydia or Newell K. Whitney. We see others, um, John Tanner. Yeah. John Tanner. We see the story of John Tanner. We see so many people in the Ohio period that are just solid. And so I'm kind of grateful that section 40 is in here because it shows how the Lord sees him. And I also wonder about verse nine, like you're James Coville and you've been this Methodist minister and he was an itinerant preacher for a long time where he just went from house to house and went to these camp meetings and taught. And how does verse nine shake out? There's just a lot we don't know, but it's really interesting to read and to see that as a foil. Um, In the Book of Mormon, right, we have Laman and Lemuel, and sometimes they become caricatures of, you know, super, super righteous or super, super wicked. And I kind of look at history as we're kind of complex. One day we'll talk to James. My hope and my heart is that he's joined 
And that's really the beauty of that. the Lord is as soon as James' heart is right, if he were to turn right around and make his heart right, he would receive all the blessings the Lord offered him. Yeah. The Lord is a God of do-overs. He's a God of second chances if we change, and then he brings those blessings. Just a thought on section 38 as well. We were talking a lot about Zion and, and the idea of inequality. I have this chart in my head and on one side, on the left side, I have this idea of social order. And on the other side is this idea of everyone being equal, this egalitarian society. I think in Europe, especially in the 1700s and the 1600s, there was this social order and everybody knew their place. Odds are Bryce and I would probably not be high up on the chain. We would probably be workers in someone's vineyard, or I would might, I might be a serf, or maybe I would be a guy that chewed your horse. There was this structure, and everybody knew who was in charge in 1700. It was the king. It was the prince. But everybody also had a purpose, and it was pretty much unequal. Like most of us struggled. Today, after all these years, and we've gone through the Enlightenment, we have this, at least in the West, right, this notion of egalitarianism where everybody matters. Everybody gets a voice. Thank goodness. Women have a right to vote. They can own property. Everybody's voice matters. And then you have the internet. Everyone can have a megaphone. They can get on social media and get 50,000 followers and show you how they do their hair. And all of a sudden, they're, they're a phenom. But what have we lost? One commentator says, well, maybe we've lost purpose. Is there a sense of hopelessness? It seems like people are more distrustful of social institutions, of banks, of financial institutions, of governments, of churches. And so with this egalitarianism where everyone matters and everyone has a right to speak and to vote and to own property and these opportunities more and more opened up, we've lost some purpose and hope. And what I see Zion is, and this is kind of my religion It's the best of everything. Imagine a society where everyone's equal, but everyone has a purpose. Everyone has hope. And I think to me, that's what Zion is, where God says, okay, let's take the best of everything and let's make it work. See, losing purpose because we lose God, and as we get more hopeless, that breeds a whole other set of problems. The solution is recognize who you are in God's plan and recognize his greatness and then find out what his purpose is for you. You see, James Colville was told his purpose, and Edward Partridge is going to get his. Emma got hers in section 25, and all of us can kneel down and talk to Heavenly Father and say, Lord, what would you have me do? And I think that's another thing this section is doing, is it's inviting us to participate with God to see what we are to do. And one of the great blessings that's hinted at over and over and over again is get to Ohio so you can build a temple so I can pour out blessings you don't even understand. He's going to hint at that so many times here. He did so in 38 where he says, go to the Ohio, I'll give you my law, and there you shall be endowed with power from on high. And then again in section 39, verse 15, he says, inasmuch as my people shall assemble themselves at the Ohio... I have kept in store a blessing such as is not known among the children of men, and it shall be poured forth upon their heads. Clearly, one of those things he was referring to has to be the temple and the blessings that come into our lives from the temple. The Lord keeps saying, you've got to get to a place where we can safely build a temple. 
And one of the reasons we came out west is to find a place where we can safely build a temple and the Lord can pour out those blessings upon us. So one more example of if you will be with him, if you'll follow the saints, if you'll come and gather where they gather, I will pour out a blessing that you have not known, that the world has not known. Joseph Smith backs that up where he says, it was the design of the councils of heaven before the world was that the principles and laws of the priesthood should be predicated upon the gathering of the people in every age of the world. Ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not altered or changed. All must be saved on the same principles. Joseph Smith is sharing with the saints this idea that gathering is associated with temples. Yep. Joseph Smith will later say, quote, what was the object of gathering the Jews or the people of God in any age of the world? The main object was to build unto the Lord a house whereby he could reveal unto his people the ordinances of his house and the glories of his kingdom and teach the people the way of salvation for there are certain ordinances and principles that, when they are taught and practiced, must be done in a place or a house built for that purpose. It is for the same purpose that God gathers together his people in the last days, to build unto the Lord a house to prepare them for the ordinances and endowments, washings, and anointings. So go to the Ohio, and we're going to start that. Then we're going to go to Missouri, and we're going to do it. We're going to go to Illinois, and we're going to build a house. And then we're going to go to Salt Lake, and we're going to build a house. And now everywhere the church is sent, our goal is to build a temple so that we can endow our people with power from on high. So good. You know, Bryce, speaking of temples and gathering, I just want to geek out for a minute about section 38, verse 1. We get this word that doesn't pop up a ton in Scripture. And the word is seraphic. So I'm going to read verse 1. Thus saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I am, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made, the same which knoweth all things, for all things are present before mine eyes. That word, seraphic, the seraphic hosts, there's a lot of ways to unwrap that, as it were. On the first level, and this is the level that we'll teach in if you're teaching Sunday school or if you're, if you're talking with your kids and they say, Mom, Dad, what is the seraphic host of heaven? You could just say, you know what? Those are the angels in heaven, that God is the God of the Lord of hosts. And there's this big, wide expanse of eternal beings. And they're the seraphic hosts of heaven. And I think that's a really good way to read it and to talk about it, that they're beings and that they're divine. This is not for everybody, but I just want to geek out about this a little bit so you can kind of unwrap some of these ideas. And if something I say doesn't make a ton of sense, go to the show notes and you can pull on these threads because we give you a ton of links and things that you can look at. So the seraphim, that's the plural of seraph, that's coming to you from Isaiah in his call narrative in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and above it 
stood the seraphim. And in English, it says the seraphims, but that's kind of redundant because seraphim is plural, but we put an S on it in English. So the seraphims. Each one had six wings. Twain, he covered his face, and twain, he covered his feet, and with twain, he did fly. And one cried to another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved, and the voice of him that crieth, and the house was filled with smoke. The context is Isaiah is at the veil. There's smoke in the hakal. There's smoke in this house as he stands before the veil, because the altar of incense is right by him. And he sees these seraphim. There's plural, at least two. And they are high and above the Lord who's on his throne. In my estimation, he's in the Holy of Holies. So these are divine beings, and they're associated with the temple, and they're associated with ascent. So on that main level, they're angels. But on another level, so now we're on like a second level of what's a seraph? A seraph is actually a serpent. Like that's what the word means. It means a serpent. And so sometimes in the Bible, it's translated as a fiery serpent or a serpent. It actually occurs three times in the Bible outside of Isaiah. So it's a couple times in Numbers 21, verse 6 and 8, and then it's in Deuteronomy 8, 15. That's it outside of Isaiah. And then if you get into Isaiah, it's four times in Isaiah, and Isaiah is using it very purposefully. In Isaiah, it's going to represent a ruler it's also going to represent these divine beings like we talked about in Isaiah 6. But Isaiah's using it, I think, on another level in the sense that it's this raised serpent. Now, the question that a lot of scholars get into is, is this somebody in human form? Is this word serpent used as kind of a euphemism, not necessarily a serpent? I like that, but that's what the word means. Now, this is going to be the symbol that the king of Egypt is going to wear on his head as a sign of authority. This symbol, and there's a couple different ways to pronounce it, but it's going to be called a ureus, and it's the serpent on the forehead of the king. And in a lot of their holy places, the Egyptians would have two of them on either side of a symbol for the eye of God or the sun. And these symbols have a lot of meaning, but just on the second level, they represent a a serpent. Now, before we go any further, I just want to throw this out there. We have this narrative in Genesis where there's a serpent. And when Adam and Eve are cast out, there's cherubim and a flaming sword that guards the way of the tree of life. And the word cherubim is typically referred to as angels or guardians. And I think that that word is actually a pun. It's very close to the word for sword. And Hereb and Keruv, these are very close. And the idea that there are these angels or these Keruv that have these Hereb, that they have these swords, I don't think that's just by chance. And so the image I want to paint in your head is this idea of serpents and swords in Eden. And Eden is a prototypical temple. So we have this idea of ascent coming into heaven and serpents. That's like the second level. Now, the third level is going to have to do with what's called the Enoch literature. We know that Enoch was a prophet. We have his stuff in the book of Moses. Outside of the Bible, there's this whole corpus of literature of these 
visions of Enoch. And in these visions, he ascends into these levels of heaven. Usually heaven is plural in the scriptures, not always, but usually. And in second Enoch chapters 20 through 22, he goes on this ascent where he comes into God's presence. And I'm just going to read a portion of it, but you can go and read more. Like I said, go to the show notes. But as he ascends, he hears these voices. He says, but the face of the Lord is not to be talked about. It is so marvelous and so supremely awesome and supremely frightening. And who am I to give an account of the incomprehensible being of the Lord? So this is Enoch talking about his vision. And of his face, so extremely strange and indescribable. And how many are his commands and his multiple voice. And the Lord's throne, supremely great and not made by hands. And the choir all around him and the cherubim and the seraphim and their armies, and they're never silent singing. So he talks about approaching God, seeing God, and seeing these various angelic beings, the cherubim and the seraphim. And then he says, who can give an account of his beautiful appearance, never changing and indescribable in his great glory? I fell down flat and did obeisance to the Lord. And the Lord with his mouth said to me, be brave, Enoch, don't be frightened, stand up and stand in front of my face forever. And then skipping down a little bit, the Lord calls upon Michael, the mighty angel. And the Lord says to him, go and extract Enoch from his earthly clothing and anoint him with my beautiful oil and put him into the clothes of my glory. And so Michael did just as the Lord said to him, he anointed me and he clothed me. And the appearance of that oil is greater than the greatest light. And its ointment is sweet like dew and its fragrance like myrrh. And it is like the rays of the sun. And I looked at myself and I had become one of his glorious ones. And there was no observable difference. So on this third level, the seraphim are related to this ascent to God. And they're tied into this idea of Enoch being anointed with oil. And that's really important if you get into some of the earliest stuff that we have in the history of man associated with this symbol. And so just kind of hold on that thought for a minute. A fourth level, and this is Joseph Smith. He says this, God Almighty himself dwells in eternal fire. Flesh and blood cannot go there for all corruption is devoured by the fire. But a resurrected being of flesh and bones quickened by the spirit of God can. So he says, heaven is the realm of everlasting burnings, a kind of burning that is holy and unlike anything mortals now experience or understand. So God dwells in everlasting burnings. That's actually what the word seraph can mean. It can mean to burn or to shoot fire or to incinerate. And so on that fourth level, it's this idea of divine light or divine fire. The verb seraph can mean burn or incinerate or destroy. The verb is transitive, meaning that it denotes an entity that annihilates by burning. So that could be one of these ideas of the brightness of the angels of God, which really helps us to see what Joseph says when he's 17, where he describes Moroni about the whiteness of his countenance. And then he said that it was like lightning. Okay. So on the fifth level, another way to look at this, and it's this idea that there was a God in heaven. And so it depends on what time period you are in the history of Egypt. But there was this idea, this notion that the God 
had a goddess who defended him, and she was like unto this seraph. The goddess was like a Uraeus. That is a word that comes from the Greeks. And so the, the nominative masculine singular of this word is Uraeus, is how the word is pronounced in classic Greek. And that word literally means to stand up or to rise up. There's this serpent or a cobra that's standing up. And to the Egyptians, it can also mean the white crown or the great one. And it's to symbolize the power or authority of the person in charge. So in Egypt, the king would have it in his, all of his cool kingly clothing. He would have that on his head. And the goddess would anoint Osiris with oil. And so we have Isis doing this. Isis, she's this spouse of Osiris and she's going to anoint him. And in the Egyptian context, there were two of these serpents on either side of the eye of Ra, and then wings coming out. And really for for this to make sense, you kind of have to see it. And so go to the show notes and we'll link some pictures that you can kind of get an idea of what this looked like. And it was all over in Egypt. You've probably seen this image and didn't even recognize it because in the 1800s, after Napoleon goes into Egypt and, and all these discoveries start popping up, Egyptian architecture really took off. And we see this symbol in our cemeteries. If you are wealthy and you built a mausoleum for your family, they would construct them after these Egyptian temples, like little miniature Egyptian temples. And so you would typically see a structure that had like two pillars in front of it, similar to the pillars in the Israelite temple. And then there'd be a door in between these pillars. And above the door would be this symbol of these two snakes with these wings and this eye. And this is associated with God and coming into his presence. And it's super old because the Egyptians are doing this stuff before the Old Testament authors. And Isaiah's packaging this. Like I said, most of the references to the seraphim are going to be in Isaiah. And so what they represent are these goddesses that anoint the God with oil and they give him power or they give him a kingdom. And these two serpents, as they were on the either side of the Ra in Egypt, they're to spit fire that like they defend him. These are beings who kind of stand as guardians. Now here's kind of a sixth level. Go to the book of Revelation uh, chapter 11. And it talks about these two prophets and they're defending God for 1,203 score days. They're defending their testimony. They're defending Jesus. And then in verse four, John says, these are the two olive trees. And he also calls them candlesticks. And then in verse six, it says that they have power to shut heaven. And then notice verse five, if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devour their enemies. I would suggest that in this chapter, John is also packaging this idea of these two divine beings that have the power to shoot out fire, like these seraphim, that they defend God. And I think it also ties into the divine uh, wedding between husband and wife in the sense that she gives him his kingdom. She anoints him just like the goddess would anoint the king and she would be right by his side. And this image of the eye 
and the snakes and the wing is in a lot of the iconography of the ancient Near East, and it's used in Judah a lot of times. And it's even so common as to be, in a sense, on our money. You've got that all-seeing eye right there on the dollar bill, and it's in the pyramid. And I think these ideas are related, and they're associated with ideas of ascent, coming into God, being anointed, being a king or a queen, heavenly visions, approaching God, and the power of God. So there's all these layers just with that one word in section 38 of the Doctrine and Covenants. There's this great I am, Alpha and Omega, who sees everything. He's amidst the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made. And so on one level, these are angels. On another level, the word actually means serpent. And it's on the third level associated with divine beings that are associated with vision and ascent and putting oil on Enoch and changing his his clothes and changing his person. He becomes glorious. It's associated with everlasting burnings, Joseph Smith. And then on the fifth level, it's associated with the relationship between a god and the goddess and becoming divine and entering into his presence. And we see this symbol in our cemeteries and we see part of it in our money, you know, at least on the dollar bill. And that is associated with all of these ideas. Yep. So thank you for being with us. This has been a great look into Zion and the condition of the saints on earth. Come with us next week as we gather into Ohio and the Lord pours out his law, a modern-day law, kind of like Joseph Smith goes up to Sinai and comes down with 10 tablets. That is section 42, the law of the church, and we will talk about that next time. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.